This is a medicinal mass network production. Enjoy. What's up, Truth Seekers? Welcome back to the FBI Basement, the podcast where we watch and review every episode of the hit sci-fi TV series, The X-Files, because our appeals have been denied by the governor. Today on the pod, we enjoy our last meal before taking that long walk and review the list. I'm Todd, and I'm joined today by our panel of kooks, wackos, and conspiracy theorists. First off, my lovely wife, self-published author, currently serving nine consecutive life sentences, Janet. I would just like to say that I will be sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, the big mothership and all. I'll be back. Also uh, joining us uh, via Discord here, uh, a little bit uh, under the weather, but uh, still being a trooper, our artist and professional frightener uh, and electric chair technician, the Oddite Delight Marissa. I'm tired, boss. And finally, our producer, the warden of the Medicinal Mass Network, Valentine. Shit, has anyone seen the keys? I lost the keys. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. We're great. We're going we're gonna to off to a great start. Now, each and every episode of the FBI Basement is brought to you free at the point of service because we honestly love doing it. But if you like what you hear and want to hear more, you can support us through our Patreon, which you can find at our URL, medicinalmass.com. A donation as little as $1 gets you access to all sorts of audio and video goodies and access to our Discord server where the audio sausage is made. And if you're short on cash, uh, it costs nothing to rate and review us on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice or share us with your friends, family, or enemies. And as always, though, your listenership is enough. No, it's not. Give us your money. We need, we need a new mixing board. The uh, This is the list. It's the fifth episode of the third season, originally airing on October 20th, 1995. Uh, was written and directed by showrunner Chris Carter, and you can tell because they went way over budget, apparently building a the Death Row set for this. Yeah, like you, yeah, you literally went out to me. You're like, why did they waste their money on this? I'm like, because Chris Carter wrote and directed this. Ah, gotcha. And you were like, okay. And then you left. <laughs> and uh, It's a Monster of the Week episode, and it guest stars uh, many actual live maggots. Who is phenomenal and is not not in this episode that much? Who did Bokeem play? We'll get to it. Okay, he, we'll get to it. Okay. I knew it was him because I recognized the gap in his teeth, and I'm like, oh, "You were my favorite character in season two of Fargo." Can we just review Vark Fargo? No. Anything else to get going before we get started here today? Uh, did, was in one of my favorite movies, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, before that, he was in Mantis, uh, The Dentist, which is not a bad movie, but a little weird. And in the last 15 years, has been in every fucking Rob Zombie film made. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he was the... No, oh, right, you've not seen Devil's Rejects. Marissa, he was Captain Spaulding's brother in Devil's Rejects. Why are you telling me this? I don't know. You've seen that movie more times than I have. More times than I could have ever wanted to. I think you've seen that more times than you've seen the sun. Um, no, yes. no, really? No. Yes. I thought yes. it was Star Wars anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I've seen House of a Thousand Corpses now, so I'm catching up. I'm catching up on Rob Zombie films. <laughs> he also no, saw Lords of backwards. Salem with me. I want to point out he did also see Lords of Salem. That was okay, except for when the uh, priests were jacking off their dildo dicks. 
Yeah, that, was the, that ending <laughs> just made no sense at all. It was just like, what's the most thing we could put on this movie right now? The end. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Sherry Moon Zombie might have too many tattoos. I, I don't. I shouldn't make a value judgment. Shirley Moon. <laughs> Sherry. Sherry. You called her Cherry. Well, yeah. Let's get start with the uh, this episode here. We're gonna kick this off right. Okay. The teaser uh, begins with a sketchy looking man with a mullet and a mustache standing alone at night on an empty road in Florida. So I think this might actually be Florida Man. I, you know what it struck me as? Why does this episode start like Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line? Like, this is literally the beginning of the Thin Blue Line. Uh, a pair of headlights approach and a well-dressed man in glasses pulls up next to him and asking, are you ready? And then the man in the back is Triple H and he's like, no, are you ready? <laughs> Bone saw is ready. <laughs> I'm 2 a.m. going to the moon. Going to no, the, my Triple H sounded like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we cut to death row at a Florida penitentiary, and it's the day of execution for Napoleon Nietzsche Manley. Hey, did you notice that there was a complete lack of uh, protesters at Nietzsche's uh, execution? I, this is like this is the thing is like from like 1989 to the now. weren't famous. Well, maybe that's the thing, <laughs> but it's like it was like a big like statewide thing. Like they, I mean, like yeah, with Ted Bundy, they sold T-shirts that said "Fried Ted Fry." Which I guess you could make a lot of money if you have one of like, those shirts. Apparently, like, so wait, they're not protesting the execution. They're protesting the guy being executed. It's like a fucking tailgate party. I guess maybe FSU is playing Miami that day. Fuck. I don't know. Uh, Florida, right? <laughs> Florida. Go Seminoles. We listeners in Florida. We like Florida. His last meal and counseling from the minister, uh, opting to while away his last hours with his wife, who remains optimistic that the governor will come through. Nope. Nope. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. She says she, says she ain't never gonna love another man. She ain't never gonna give you up. Oh God, I really I wanted her to say that. I ain't never gonna give you up, Nietzsche. Uh, as the guards come to get him for his last walk, he seems uh, less optimistic. <laughs> Led to the uh, execution chamber, strapped into the electric chair, the electrode attached. He's offered a hood, which he declines. Only when offered the chance to speak some final words does Nietzsche get chatty. I've been here for 11 years, 56 days, and now you're going to murder me. The Lord says thou shalt be merciful and just. I know no mercy. Allah says the spirit shall rise again and be reborn into this life. The soul shall be recast, born unto new flesh. And I will return to avenge all the petty tyranny and the cruelty I have suffered. I will be recast, reincarnated, a reunion of spirit and flesh. Mark my words, five men will die, five men will go down. This will be my justice. This will be my law. This will be my capital punishment, and no stay of execution will be granted, for there is no prejudice, no evidence to be admitted, no lawyer who did not perform his job. These men will die righteous deaths. Oh, I and see what he the did there. The guy with the hood says TLDR, and they throw the switch before he's finished. <laughs> you know what? T you know what? I realize now that he just sort of lies out exactly what he's going to do. 
It's kind of like Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2, right? Death is a doorway, time is a window, I'll be back. I will say this about Chris Carter. He kind of writes like uh, Frank Herbert. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people, maybe no one on this podcast, who like Frank Herbert. And Frank Herbert has a really great speech in Dune. The Litany of Fear is really good. The rest of it is kind of hard to get through. Like this episode. I like the fact that the dude from the uh, teaser is, is still in his bowling jersey for the execution. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> fucking like, no, we're not going to try to gonna... dress him so no one knows who he is. Nope, we're and, just going to do this. And honestly, he kind of looks like the dude who would absolutely jump at the chance to wear a hood and kill a black guy <laughs> in a legal way. Also true. Also true. Cue the theme song. I was going to sing the green, green grass at home, but I, I don't want to sing that. We join our agents in the basement. Already in progress. Yeah. Wait. Uh, Mulder is presenting a PowerPoint on Nietzsche and explaining that he was executed for a double homicide during a liquor store robbery. Uh, though he was only the getaway driver, the gunman had died in the pursuit. Boy, this guy got screwed. Well, he? actually, no, Todd. <clears throat> In a felony case, you can actually charge someone with a capital offense if the pursuer has actually been killed in the process. This is actually a law that has been in on Florida's books for quite some time. In fact, if you ever listen to Felonious Florida, holla wondery, we need jobs. Uh, they actually cover a case where that is exactly what happens. Uh, in fact, uh, Pablo Ibar is, uh, I think, trying to appeal that because he was the wheelman in the uh, murder case that he was um, convicted in. I still think it's kind of fucked. And, and, you know, apparently he had gotten two reprieves from the governor beforehand. And then Charlie Crist came into power and he denies everybody. Ah. Uh, okay. uh, during the prison time, he was known for being very well-read and charismatic, like a philosopher king amongst the condemned. Uh, but what interest Mulder has was that his final words turning out to be prophetic, and three days after the execution, a guard was found dead in his former cell. Cause unknown. The agents make their way down to Florida and are briefed by the warden as they walk through the cell block, and Scully gets eyed like by, by the inmates like a red-headed cut of beef. I like that every time that they put Scully in some kind of weird cell thing, it is literally let's steal shots from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the warden has a kind of admiration for Nietzsche, remarking that on the outside, he might have been a Nobel Prize winner. He's of the opinion that Nietzsche orchestrated the murder and carried it out posthumously via allies and proxies. The guard seems to have suffocated without activating his panic button. Nobody else in the cell. When Scully rushes forward to uh, the body, she finds it covered in maggots and in a state of advanced decomposition. I, I like that they're like, oh, we're waiting for the coroner to come down from Tallahassee. And she's like, on it. Like, <laughs> like, how fast did she run to do that autopsy? I think it's disgusting. That's, <laughs> that's my assessment. I like that. And, you know, it's like the warden's like, ew. Mulder is like, oh, God. And Scully is like, hmm. I didn't eat breakfast and now I'm starving. <laughs> that is the look on her face. That is like, I am really hungry right now. She's just thinking about the bucket of chicken that's still in the car. Yeah. 
There's, oh my God, there probably is still a bucket of chicken in the car. The agents speak to John Speranza, uh, who is one of Nietzsche's fellow inmates and followers who wholeheartedly believes that Nietzsche has made his return via what he calls transmigration of the soul. It's like uh, chicken soup for the soul, except I guess involves maggots? I I don't know. Uh, when Mulder posits that the murder could have been carried out by a trustee or a prisoner on work detail, Sperns explains that there are no such allowances on Q-Block. No one enters or leaves without a guard, and since Nietzsche's execution, even, even that security has been doubled. Uh, Scully is walking down to Nietzsche's cell by a guard named Fournier, who wasn't uh, buying Nietzsche's BS for a second. I feel like this guy ha- is a lot of is. From just his speech. Uh, she spots a odd stain on his pillow with a few flies buzzing around. When Fournier steps away to check on Mulder, Scully wanders to the end of the block and into the showers for some reason. Okay, so this guy just leaves a female alone on the death row. Like, I'm going to go over here for a hot minute later. Yeah, I'm going to check on your male partner. Why don't you stay here? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be fine. They're locked in their cells. I'm going to go check on your male partner there, who is like a good foot taller than the inmate he's talking to. But Scully just goes down to the showers. She's like, okay, I'm going to go this way. <laughs> uh, she is grabbed from behind by Parmeli, another guard who uh, says Nietzsche had a specific hit list. Played by Ken Foray. There was probably a a better way (laughs) to do this. I like that he's like, don't be afraid, as he's got his massive hand over her face, suffocating like her nose and everything, like forming a clear seal around her mouth and nose. Like, don't panic. (laughs) I'm just Just a large black man who grabbed you from behind. And Ken Foray is huge. Like, he's a big guy. So, but uh, very nice, I hear. Well, he says that Nietzsche had a specific hit list and that it was in the possession of a convict named Roke. And when Fournier comes back looking, Parnelli fades into the shadows. <laughs> How does a guy that big do that? It's like that, like that Homer gif of him going back into the hedge. <laughs> That's, oh. what, that's what it's like. Um, oh my god! No, like that's the thing. Like when I say Ken, for, like he's a big guy. He's like over like six something, and you know, geez, no, I don't know. <laughs> Just so it is. No, no. When Scully gets reunited with Mulder, she looks like to be on the verge of an actual panic attack. I'm like, out of here. Let's get, go. Let's go. Let's go. Just get me the fuck out of here right no, now. No, right it's now. not because she's having a panic attack. She just wants to get back to her fucking chicken. Yeah, she's like, it's getting cold. <laughs> and it, like, and this is like, you know, more so uh, uncomfortable in this death row than she was when she visited a different death row and beyond the sea. Like, this is, it's, how is this less like that? And on her way out, Roke, the prisoner in the first sale, just leers at her. Very Why does he look so damn familiar? Because that's Bokeem Woodbine. Who? Uh, Leo? No, fuck both of you. Bokeem Woodbine. Um, <laughs> God damn it, I know. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah, Sam and Roke is played by Bokeem Woodbine. Uh, you will know him from such things as the second season of Fargo. He 
does look a little Dave Chappelle. Uh, he was also, yeah, he was, um, uh, recall. totes recall. He was also Herman Schultz in, uh, homecoming. Uh, he was an overlord. Uh, da, da, da. but you probably saw him in that second season of Fargo as Mike Milligan. Hmm. Yeah. He's the black assassin with the most Irish name ever unsolved. Hmm. Tupac versus Biggie. It was discovered uh, covered in maggots inside a paint can by convicts on work detail. And to a nicer guy, it could not happen. Yeah. Uh, the head is shrink-wrapped, and Scully gets to examine it along with the local forensic pathologist. And uh, she remarks at how the maggots arrived rather quickly once more. Though the pathologist explains that the green botfly can lay its eggs just minutes after death and breed rapidly in humid, hot, humid environments. So basically, Florida is our Australia, the land of nope. An examination of the first guard revealed a massive infestation within his lungs, and perhaps he did not suffocate so much as drown. Dun dun dun. Mulder, meanwhile, goes to question Roke about the list amid acrimony from Speranza. Uh, one of the two are in once the two are in a more private setting. Roke confesses that he has heard Nietzsche give his list to Speranza, but he won't say more unless he can cut a deal and transfer out of Q Block. The warden's unwilling to cut such a deal, thinking it would just encourage more prisoners to kill more guards. And uh, he is resolved to getting to the bottom of the conspiracy, but his resolve is surely shaken when he, the rest of Fournier is found sitting at his desk. Seeking insight into Nietzsche, the agents peruse his bookshelf, which is more like a small library. Scully is having a look through his dog-eared and much-bookmarked copy of the Bible, while Mulder is combing through Nietzsche's own writings, which includes hundreds of pages, on the subject of different belief structures regarding reincarnation, including those of Zoroastrianism and the Rosicrucians. Oh, the Rosicrucians. Those guys are wacky. They've also killed people. I really want to join a religion that I get to wear a cape. You get a sash. Actually, no, I don't think it's so much the Rosicrucians themselves. I, I think that was the Temple of the Solar Church of the Solar Temple. Uh, Scully is still inclined to believe that this is an elaborate plot being carried out by the prisoners or the guards. Uh, Mulder is still enamored of the idea of reincarnation for vengeance purposes and even asks Scully who might be on her list if she could pull off such a feat. She replies, only get she probably has a revenge list of miles long, and we're only in season three. Ah, uh, Mulder. Probably Crycheck, question mark. Guy who shot her sister. Uh, the guy she went on the date with in uh, Jersey Devil. I mean, if you're really... Uh, Mulder again. Um, you could reincarnate somebody so you could kill them multiple times, you know? I, I just would love to read Scully's diary. That's sort of the thing I want. Well, the uh, agents go back to question Nietzsche's widow, who testifies to his beliefs and power, as even as her hands tremble. Uh, back at the prison, the warden meets with Roke in the shower for some totally constitutional questioning about the list, accompanied by a lot of hard punching. So, yeah, Bokeem Woodbine, who I think wins multiple Emmys... Uh, years later in you know, Fargo I, is in this episode like five times uh, for five, five minutes. minutes five minutes 
Uh, finally, uh, Roke reveals that the warden is number five on the list and asks him how it feels to be on death row. And he's like smiling through like this bloodied teeth and everything. Washington in the Lynn Manuel episode of Drunk History. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Apparent fear and speculate that she may also be on the list. The suspicion doesn't have time to settle. Scully gets a call informing her that Roke was found beaten to death in, in the shower. As Danielle watches the agents leave, she's approached from behind by Parmeli, who we discover is living with her now. Uh, Parmeli assures her that as he gets ready to go, put a bullet shift at the prison, that Nietzsche is not coming back. Older questions the warden about Roke's relationship with Nietzsche, and it turns out the two men didn't like each other. In fact, they had come to blows previously. The guards who made the list had both delivered a beating to Nietzsche about a year ago. Mulder surmises that the victims are those who would cause Nietzsche physical pain and suffering. Warden plans to put the whole place on lockdown to keep a lid on this, but Mulder points out that the conspiracy could have, and indeed must have, included guards or, the, or other officials. Someone to have access to, you know, uh, his office to put into you know, Stash Fournier's body in it. And other things. Because none of the prisoners would have been able to do that, you know. Uh, he asks for the name of the executioner, but the warden says the info is confidential. They uh, put out an ad and, and pay in cash, and everything is kept under the table. And now Shannon is going to tell you why this is bullshit. <clears throat> well, thank you for joining me uh, for the True Crime Podcast that I'd like to be doing right now instead of this one. So uh, I have done quite a bit of research, and it is dark and it is horrible. And as I have found out, is that this doesn't happen. Yes, uh, executioners are, in fact, strictly confidential. Uh, and they actually are chosen from what is called the death team, which is a group of people who come in about two days before an execution, move the person who is to be executed out of the maximum security prison to the quote-unquote death house. Uh, this is a random thing that happens. They select someone from the death team itself. Uh, all of these people are highly trained because you can't have a doctor or uh, any sort of medical staff in because that actually violates their codes of ethics. And um, they're never paid under the table. In fact, they're the best paid people in the corrections service. Uh, the only person who would actually know who is doing the specific execution is the State Board uh, of Corrections. Uh, also, uh, I have some fun facts about the uh, uh, electric chair, because I thought maybe that wasn't the case. Uh, fun fact, we're actually between the time before they start questioning the electric chair in Florida, because <laughs> um, uh, Pedro Medina uh, is executed in 90... Seven uh, and uh, burns to death. Yeah, his hood catches fire. Yeah, his right? hood catches on fire. They don't put it out in time, so he does not die the merciful death of execution at the hands of electric, but uh, from smoke inhalation. Let the sponge. Uh, the sponge slipped and then it caught on fire. Uh, yes, I was wondering because there was no sponge in this one. They just put a little. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and it, it, yes, so that's ninety seven. They actually end it in ninety nine, when um, Alan Lee Davis chokes to death on his own blood because he breaks a nose from an improperly mounted strap while he is convulsing in the electric chair and dies. Uh, again, not from electrocution, 
from choking on his own blood. I, I, I'm beginning to think that capital punishment is kind of barbaric here. Yeah, I actually had to sit there and watch Leah Remedy's uh, Scientology show about how David Miscavige used to throw hammers at executives in Scientology because that was lighter than what I was reading. Uh, apparently, if you're an executioner, you do a lot. Uh, I was reading one article from The Guardian of a guy who had worked for about 20 years in Virginia, and he's like, I put 69 people to death. It's barbaric. There, you go. There's my fun true crime podcast in the middle of this episode. So no... No, this is all bullshit. None of this could happen. Uh, the fact that a guard on death was having an affair with an inmate's wife shouldn't have happened. I know in Virginia, they actually bring death teams from other parts of the state into where they're doing the execution. Um, specifically because of this. Specifically. We're bringing a little life to this uh, episode. The thing I could do. They eventually uh, pry the name of the executioner out of the warden, uh, and they go to visit, go to his place, and find it full of pictures of uh, him uh, burning crosses, and fishing, and burning crosses, uh, curb stopping some homosexual. No, no, it's a lot of fishing. Uh, Scully also finds maggots on a nearby rug, and calling Mulder in. He managed to catch one that's wriggling down from the light fixture in the ceiling. For totally a moment, he looked. Yeah, he looks like he's going to eat it, right? Like, like Mulder's. No. And then she doesn't, so he eats it anyways. <laughs> what is wrong with you, Fox? Many uh, they find him uh, upstairs in his attic, sitting in a rocking chair, also uh, covered in previously re referred to maggots. Uh, Mulder brings Speranza back in. Not even Speranza. Not even the threat of solitary confinement can make him reveal who else is on Nietzsche's list. He claims to have seen Nietzsche himself standing outside his cell, big as life. What he does reveal is that Roke was definitely not on the list. Scully arrives with information on a new player who has been in communication with Nietzsche before his execution and most recently has made visits to Speranza. Sheraz has been Nietzsche's uh, public defender during the murder trial and thinks he may be on the list. Oh, God. And this God, guy. this guy's a fucking yuppie. You, you, uh, you say that, but you know what he reminds me of? What's that? He reminds me of Dr. Law. <laughs> like the, the like doctor okay so dr law base i don't remember the guy's name dr law was the court appointed attorney for eileen warnos right and uh he was a, a like if you like find the documentary about like you know eileen warnos you know, or, like done like in the last few days of her life or whatever it is i can't remember when it was made there are two this guy is so fucking weird and horrible and it's obvious that he's only doing this for the money of representing Eileen Warnos. I, like, that is instantly what I thought when I saw this guy. It's like, this is Dr. Law. This guy is literally just Dr. Law. Apparently, so. the dude is trying to pull any strings he can to get off of this list. And um, uh, up to trying to help out uh, help out Speranza. I like the fact that like his entire condominium is... Uh, it is the cheapest fucking set ever. It's full of white furniture. 
And that was like an aesthetic thing back in like the 80s and 90s where it's like white was purity or something like that. Uh, and it's also like a thing of, I don't own this. It's a timeshare. I'm going to be renting it out to a couple of tourists in three weeks. <laughs> He's in there sweating his balls off, like wearing a full suit. And then uh, he opens the window and leaves the air conditioner running. Oh, he kind of deserves to. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by... I'm Danny Sherez. You might remember me as a bass player from Enter the White Room, the third most popular cream cover band in Tampa. Well, now that my minor run-in with that nursing home has been settled, and I've been cleared of all malpractice charges from the Florida State Bar, I'm ready to present you... Divorce? No problem. Hot coffee on your lap? No problem. I learned my lesson when it came to capital cases. You know I'm legit because the condo I'm subletting for my mom and Dave is completely white. That's Danny Jerez, attorney at law. Contact me at 1-800-555-DANNY or on the web at www.dannysixstring.angelfire.com. That's lit. <laughs> no, it is. But where thank you, you for pretending. Where do you find these people? <laughs> <sighs> Craigslist. Danny Sherez dies later that night of suffocation. And the most irrelevant, the most irrelevant murder in this entire episode. Unimportant. Also, I, I forgot to mention here that uh, this guy kind of spilled it to Mulder and Scully that uh, Danielle was uh, sleeping with Parmelli. How does he know this? Oh, right. Because, you know, he tried to go to his wife and ended up getting a gun brandish in his face. Which is what we do with greasy lawyers on our front porch. After, so they go into follow up on the Parmelli thing and they do catch Parmelli coming home to Danielle. Agents inform the warden of his relationship. The fact that he's uh, approached Scully on Roke's behalf tells them of uh, Cherez's death. And they conclude that Parmelli must be acting as Nietzsche's assassin. That night, Danielle wakes up to see Nietzsche standing in her bedroom. She gets up to see Parnelli, who is noticing the agents and cops coming to make the arrest. He tries to calm her down, but she's got a gun pointed at him. She fires before he hits the floor. Yeah, she uh, she might have been a little rattled from uh, Nietzsche, a little harder than she was letting on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little abusive. Yeah, why are you reacting this way? I If you ain't never gonna not love him, I... Uh hate this episode so much right now. Back at Q-Block, the warden has had Speranza dragged into the showers, and with Parnelli dead, the warden decides to decides the bargain's off, instead giving Speranza the same deal he gave to Rook earlier in the episode, just starts beating him up with some weak-ass looking punches. Yeah, this, this is probably so where bad. this guy like, throws his back out for real in real life. <laughs> oh, God. On their way out of Florida, Mulder seems unsatisfied at the case's apparent resolution, verbalizing all the nonsensical, unresolved plot threads that have doubtless been driving Shannon crazy. There are so many questions. What the hell is going on? Why did you have to have the lawyer die? Why does it matter? Was he in that crowd? I don't remember seeing him in the crowd. How is he doing this? Are the maggots the reason he's able to do this? Was he really Ken Foray? What is going on? Why will no one tell me? And no, no, are there going to be answers? No. 
No. Scully just says that there could have been more accomplices or Parmelli could have gone off the reservation with the plan. Uh, Mulder's still left with a case of conspiracy blue balls. And now, how does Parmelli end up with Danielle? How do they meet? He just got there. Then they're deciding to stay with each other? What is it? Ugh. The warden's car passes the agents as he heads home. Uh, I guess they're both, they're all on the one road leading out of there Florida. There is literally only one in and out of Florida. I thought you knew this. The warden's car passes the agents and he takes a moment to swat an annoying fly off his face before glancing back into his rear view. Nietzsche is there and he grabs him, sending his car careening into a tree. Alone in the car now, the warden lies dead as food for the flies fade to black. Okay, on one hand, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say uh, there was actually some pretty good acting in this episode. I thought that the guest stars really brought it quite well. However, all the good acting in the world is not going to make up for some kind of lazy writing. And this one kind of has that in spades. Let's take the basic idea of a death row inmate uh, resurrected for revenge, coming back for revenge. Uh, let's see, that's the plot of the 1990 movie Shocker. Sorry, was that 89? 1989's Shocker, right? And uh, I think Marissa had posted about this earlier. Was uh, was that movie any better than this episode? No. Uh, Maybe. Did you guys notice who was in that movie? Who was in that movie? Mitch Pileggi. <gasps> da da da! Uh, as the lead. Oh, that's right. Was he like the prisoner or was he the, he um, was the prisoner? Oh, it's been it's been a while since I've even looked at anything. I'd actually like to see this. I, I should probably watch this movie sometime and see Mitch Plaggy kill people. All right. Uh, well, it will be better than him being Sam and Dean. You feel like this is a reference? When was Shock? Uh, Eighty nine. So this oh, is ninety five. It's a reference. They're probably referencing something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tara Spinker, you're correct. I think that they also has John Tesh. I think that they could have done a little bit something better with the bot flies, the yeah. bot fly and the larva and stuff like that. Like I, I don't. It seems that that kind of funny. falls by the wayside, except just sort of. Was there an explanation for it? Was the bot fly yeah, other than bot flies? I, I mean, was it? Was there some like? Was, did I miss something in that speech? Was it like? They never declare at the end uh, who was actually helping him kill the people because. Mulder wasn't really convinced at the end there either. Was Nietzsche in the car the explanation the whole time that he actually was coming back from the dead? I'm glad you asked that question, and I feel like the episode told you plainly exactly what was happening. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It didn't. It never does. This is a problem with Chris Carter. It's like, well, I wrote it. It's now 43 minutes. Let's go. I'm I'm not saying you have to have full frontal nudity with every monster of the week. And also, it's kind of a poor poor follow-up for Clyde Bruckman's final repo. Uh, also, Shocker has a 20% fresh rating, so <laughs> it's, it's probably on the same part as this episode. Guys, this okay. movie can't... This, it's, it's, it's very clearly a Candyman. It is! It is, and that's such a good movie, and that's such a good idea, and it's such a good thing, and this was not they, more, because... Um, Hopefully they fucking used it after they were done making this episode. And they're like, you know what? They end up using this one again then? I think so. All right. We'll, we'll, oh, keep, we'll keep an eye out for the uh, telltale signs. 
right. Um, uh, before we finally uh, uh, verdict for this episode, it's time to disseminate a little bit of information about the R-Cast and the fun projects we've got cooking up. First off, I'll toss it to my wife, the writer who uh, writes books like the Department of the Arcane series. Yes, I do. And you can find those at schuffwrites.com or on Angel Fire, or you can try to track me down in one of those Yahoo Messenger groups on the Amazon. I th- uh, we'll, we'll have enough jokes about outdated internet. Oh my God, I can't wait. I'm so excited about that one. Um, no, no but- I'm not. We've also got Marissa, the Oddite Delight, who is an artist and will take commissions. I do take commissions. My links are usually attached to the episode. Most yeah, just starting up. Bang. I eat crackers. The Oddite Delight on Facebook. Look at the links in the episode descriptions. It's there. And uh, finally, we come to Valentine and the... Medicinal Mass Network, which brings you this and several other fine audio audio um, uh, offerings. Yeah, we got what do, you, what do you call it? The audio sausage. Yeah, uh, go ahead and click on any of the links below the episode, and you can uh, buy one of the books that I narrate, uh, like Tantric Sex or Cookbook or or the God one. They're all they're all good. Oh yeah, the Tantric Cookbook, the Tantric God Sex Book. Cookbook. <laughs> Tetric sex with God while you cookbook. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, uh, after reviewing the evidence pre- presented and uh, and uh, seeing the, the jury's thing, I sentence this episode to uh, to five consecutive life sentences and then just to be beaten to death in the showers. I don't have a gavel to bang, otherwise I'd be banging. Could, could we just get like that in? I mean, <laughs> sentence this horrible, horrible episode to be stuck in no less than three Nick Bloomfield directed documentaries about this episode. I'd murder it. Uh, Valentine. And about Sarah Palin. Yeah, this episode gets exactly one severed head but your reread of the episode i would definitely give it a three out of five just because it was really the content we were covering was not that great <laughs> the read through is more enjoyable yes it is and marissa i sentenced unfairly because i have pre on the series they're not good episodes all right and uh, we now come to the time where we tell you what's up in our next episode. And join us next time when we hop on our modems and learn about the dangers of online dating circa 1995. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so much fun. ASL? <laughs> where are you laughing? <laughs> ASL? You cyber? Have you got yourself your free uh, demo disc for AOL now? Hey Todd, how many lesbians did you pose as back in the day? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a plurality of lesbians. <laughs> I think you said lesbians. Lesbian, you cyber hot. Okay. You lesbian is cool and bye. No, please go away. Oh, um, uh, we don't have any cons coming up just in the immediate future, but we are going to go see Avengers Endgame down in Bristol when it comes out for Shannon's birthday. Isn't that going to be great? 
don't tell people I have a birthday. I tell them that I've hatched out of an egg. We are fresh out of show this week, and uh, we are glad to come to you from the Medicinal Mass Network. This has been Todd, the FBI basement, speaking for Shen, Valentine, and Marissa. He doesn't and... speak for me. He doesn't speak for me. Good night, and the truth it... is out there. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more from our other shows on the Medicinal Mass Network. Mansplaining. He's mansplaining who I am. I'm narrating. Sorry, what the hell am I? What the hell am I doing? Should have written this out. <laughs> Wait, you didn't? You you <laughs> suck at this. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> I'm just a large black man who grabbed you from behind.